Welcome to this week's episode of Top Lines and Tales, your weekly livestock podcast, as usual, sponsored by Harbro. And we continue with our series of characters in livestock. Uh, it's an honor this week to have with me on Top Lines and Tales uh, another great character in livestock, Lee Leachman from the Leachman Cattle Company of Colorado. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Andy. Fun to be on with you and Bob, and I look forward to the conversation. Sorry, I didn't mean to miss you out there, Bob, because I do have our regular contributor, Dr. Bob, on, on the on the podcast as well, who uh, who ties everybody together nicely. That would be the right thing to say, I think, about you. Bob, welcome, Bob. Oh, thanks, thanks. It's going to be great today. And um, Bob and I previously did a podcast, Lee, on, on your grandfather, Lee, and your uncle, uh, Lester, um, who has to be said to, to our listeners here, will know it, uh, probably two of the, the greatest names in the Angus breed in their generation, and uh, you know, stalwarts of, of men, and uh, went there, won everything, and, and very synonymous with, with the Angus, and uh, back in the days of, of Ankeny, and, and when they... Uh, they won pretty much everything at the at the Chicago International and everywhere else, and uh, and now we've gone full circle uh, back to yourself in 2022 with uh, Leachman's apparently uh, still going strong. Yes, we are. No, it's a very interesting history for sure, Andy. Can you give us a little bit of a precy just to our listeners that haven't heard sort of just um, how your your grandfather and and Lester's family has progressed in the cattle industry? You bet. My grandfather and his brother both went to Ohio State, and uh, after graduating, they became herdsmen for uh, regional Angus herds and then started their own operation, and uh, they were they were obviously very astute at visual selection. Um, and that would have started in the mid-1930s and progressed through the 40s and 50s and 60s, and they um, had a great, great success um, preparing what we would, I guess, call belt buckle cattle today, Bob. Um, they were based at upstate New York, and it was about visual appraisal. And they would they would routinely uh, halter and show bulls to visitors. Andy, in fact, uh, I think those were early days back before the uh, electric shears we have today. And they would use scissors to trim the cattle, and uh, they would also uh, they were at the early stages of artificial insemination before freezing, and so they would extend fresh semen and use it to breed cows so that that was a very different time from where we are today but it was all about um, having champions and then selling those champions to other breeders and uh, because of the limitations of ai you know actual ownership of those bulls was quite valuable and they sold bulls for what comparatively in in, in the same real dollars uh, would have been exceptional prices and of course back in that era um, the breeding was dominated by uh, wealthy uh, industrialists. Sure. Um, you know, they would they would sell to the likes of uh, Eisenhower and and uh, J C Penney and all these other folks on the East Coast who were. Um, you know, very successful in their own businesses who were in the cattle business. And as you said, it would show the animals, and, and the show ring very much was the, probably their main tool back then, and, and they would take carloads of bulls in, in into Chicago. We're not talking two or three, we're talking 20 or 30 strong, the, the, these animals, and all so uniform. I've seen the photographs. It was just incredible how uh, how they produced these animals back then. Yeah, and they were also, they had some strategies that kind of, held together they they were big on uh, you know showing bulls not females they were they were uh, proponents of keeping your best females and then you know that tracked on when when the when the uh, change of structure came in in the in the late 1960s they sold that business 
and my father made a transition to move out west. He'd always wanted to be out west, so he moved the business to Montana. And interestingly, my grandfather's brother, Les, also moved to Montana at about the same time. And uh, they started separate operations out in Montana. Um, but that led to uh, a pretty extensive uh, expansion of Leachman cattle. We got into several different breeds, started crossbreeding in the early 70s with many of the continental European breeds and discovered that uh, they weren't as easy to take care of as the Angus, but uh, that they did offer some growth and some muscle that perhaps Angus didn't have. And uh, of course, that was when the type change was happening. The type change you know, started there, what, Bob, in the mid-1970s or early 70s? Well, that's um, kind of more when the, you know, more of the frame. Actually, I think the first bull that, uh, you know, like Dynamo would be, 1972 would be one of the big type change bulls that Anthony yep. had. And yep. uh, if I could just add something, you know, before Lee moves on, they they have transitioned through these changes unbelievably, and then Lee continues to do that today, and he'll talk more about that, but I mean, they had a bull like Peerless in 61 that was strictly a belt buckle bull. And then in 66, they had, I think, or six, mid-60s, they had President, who was kind of a, he was getting bigger. And then by 72, they had Dynamo, which they, you know, they were ahead at every point. You know, they were they were on the leading edge, not the following. Uh, so they were out ahead of the type, and they still are today. And still are today, you're right, and we'll come on to that. And, Bob, you've done a bit of work with Lee, haven't you? Uh, I think when you were involved with the Red Angus, uh, the two of you did a bit of work together. Uh, tell us a bit about back then. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to turn this over to Lee pretty quick, but there, there's really been three... I think pivotal times at Red Angus. One was its formation with George Chiga and Sal Forbes and Waldo Forbes. I think the next was uh, Lee's dad, Jim Leachman, when he was president. That's when they opened her book and did some innovative things. And I think the the uh, third biggest change and biggest time in Red Angus history was when I I was able to come on when Lee was president, and that's when. When Lee was president is when we got into the Angus branded programs, value-based marketing, whole herd reporting. I mean, just all those programs came, uh, got started and got moving while Lee was president. So I say that, you know, the Bleachmans have been in two of the three pivotal times of the Red Angus and really helped promote the breed and put the breed on the map. Exactly right, Lee. Yeah, we, we had a strong go in Red Angus for a long, long time. I would say probably from uh... – the mid 1970s, really, right up till 2000, for 30 years, we were, uh, you know, one of the significant breeders among others. I think one of the things that dominated that and and helped the breed succeed, Andy, was the emphasis on performance testing. You had a couple of organizations in its late days. Ankeny was progeny testing bulls, and you had another company um, out of the Midwest that you might have heard of called Pioneer Seed Company. And they were performance testing Red Angus cattle. And so between the two, my father then transitioning from black to red, you know, they got into the performance testing. And and that was really the backbone of the Red Angus Association. It's what attracted my father to Red Angus was the idea that they had mandatory performance. And so you found here was a breed that was obviously smaller in numbers but was dominated by breeders who had a very objective focus. So sort of a major shift, right, from this completely subjective phenotypic evaluation to now actually measuring the cattle. And I I think as we look at the decade of the 80s and 90s, you know, most breeds in the United States started selecting for growth rate. 
and we made the cattle grow faster. I can recall about in, uh, in 1990, my father calling me from the ranch and saying we were weighing the cows as they came through at uh, preg check time in the fall of the year. And he said, my goodness, our cows average 1,400 pounds. They're big enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was at that same time, Bob, where that frame deal was still going, starting to ebb. And I think my dad was kind of one of the first guys that said, uh, you know, you're getting them too tall. Mm-hmm. You're getting them too big. And I can remember him saying to people, I'll come judge your show, but I'm going to tie a rope at, uh, at 58 inches at the entrance to the ring. And if they're bigger than that, they can't come in. And, and of course, not very many people let him judge, you know. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, and then I think there was a famous article. I don't know if you remember seeing it, Bob, that came out that a picture of a Hereford bull with an elephant head on it. And my dad given a, a talk in front of it and said, are we getting them too big? Um, <laughs> And so I, in about the late 1990s, it's a nice segue, we started moving away from just straight performance selection to utilizing multi-trade indexes. Early on in the 90s, we were incorporating carcass information through ultrasound. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we were raising uh, Angus and Red Angus, South Devon, and uh, Gelby, and Simmental, and Solaire, and two different composite lines. So... Between 1970 and, and 2000, we had done sort of this wide expansion across breeds and uh, got us into crossbreeding and got us into hybrid production. And then, of course, we started selecting with indexes. And uh, you came or you, or you developed what uh, our listeners would know in the UK, certainly would know, and across the world, you developed what was called the, the stabilizer, which is a composite in itself. But uh, I think they sort of moved on to become an actual an actual breed. Would I be right? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think everybody gets stuck on what, what words mean, but I mean, a, a composite at its core is we, we took several pure breeds and combined them together into a composite. Um, and then we start breeding that based on breeding objectives. And that movement started in the late 1980s when we found a uh, population in a commercial herd in Nebraska that was made up of uh, Gelby, Simmental, Hereford, and Red Angus. It was patterned after a, a herd that had been built at the uh, USDA Research Center in Nebraska, at the Meat Animal Research Center. And these cattle were performing phenomenally. And we, we at that stage, made the decision to uh, basically depart from hybrids and go into composite lines. Um, we have chosen to kind of keep our composite lines open as it is, Andy. I mean, a lot of people fix them and say, we're going to close the population. Mm-hmm. Um, we took a different approach and said, you know, there's there's obviously all kinds of breeders around the world selecting for pure breeds and animals and hybrids. And, and we want to be able to go out and sample the best of those and incorporate them into our composites. And so we've kept the composites open. We don't have a fixed breed definition. Rather, we have a breeding objective. And that basically defines the the breed, if you will. Okay, and I mean, it, for, for our listener, obviously, we've got a purebred, a hybrid, a composite, a stabilizer. It, it's, um, can, can you sort of define the difference between maybe a hybrid and a composite? Is there a difference? Yeah, I suppose that depends on people's own definitions. I call hybrids two or less breed, I mean, basically two breed animals. Okay. I mean, that's, that is an arbitrary definition because you could certainly call a four breed a hybrid. But as we get into multiple generations of crossing hybrids, then we call them composites. 
And that's what the stabilizer is. You can go back literally 20, 30 generations on some of these animals and their and their and their composites bred to composites. Okay. Animals with three or more breeds bred back to an animal with three or more breeds, okay. right on up through the line. Okay. And and of course in all that, um, as as you as you and Bob well know, Andy, and I'm sure I've discussed on this podcast. You know, there's a lot of variation within breeds, right? It all depends on what a breeder is selecting for. In the case of stabilizers, um, we tend to have a lot of uniformity because the people selecting for them are disciplined in their selecting objectives. And that drives the uniformity of that composite line or breed, if you will. Is a lot of this done by computer? Are we basically talking a computer program here that says, right, we're going to manufacture this animal by taking a bit of this and a bit of that and just putting it together and hit the button? Or, or is, it, is a lot of this still just done purely by, by uh, visual and data selection? Yeah, the precursor to all this was a lot of crossbreeding experience that happened in the 70s, Andy, where we started mating various European breeds to Angus and Angus Hereford animals. And some of those worked really well and some of them didn't. And I think we quickly determined that some of the European breeds were more maternally focused and some were more terminally focused. And uh, and they had all kinds of challenges for those of us that were used to breeding British cattle. And so we, we've We've, we've done both. We've taken a, a, a quite a bit of that old school husbandry and visual appraisal to decide which com- combinations we wanted to make. And then, of course, we, we use data to optimize the combinations. For example, today, um, you know, we utilize a lot of Gelvie and Simmental. They bring a lot of muscle to the table, but if you're not careful, they come with that with a lot of frame and not enough marbling for the U.S. market. And so we are using both data and visual. And and I think all breeders are doing that. It's just a question of of how technically they are collecting their data, right, Andy? I mean, we all look at an animal. I mean, even the title of your podcast, Top Lines and Tailheads. I mean, we're all assessing data, right? Mm -hmm. It's just different forms of data. Some of us assess it strictly visually. Some of us assess it with a, a visual and a weight or measurement. Some of us assess it visually with a weight and a measurement and an EPD and a genomically enhanced EPD and an index. And I I think our philosophy today is to utilize all the tools available. And I I would suggest that that's maybe something that's a common theme throughout the history of our family. We were always looking to utilize everything available. And so when when the changes came, we were looking to go out and find the genetics that would lead the change. Um, and I, I think we're all focused on that. Can, can I add something uh, real quickly in here? As a foundation, you and your dad, especially your dad, led with the lookalikes. Sol, solid body, same frame, solid body, uh, you know, solid color pattern, red or black. Uh, and so it took the variation that you would see out of crossbreeding. They did that early on. And then when you start in that place, you are going to have a lot of uniformity. And if you build composites off of that, there will be tremendous uniformity. So they used to have, he did a circle. Uh, it was, he was the one that came up with that, 
where they tied this circle of different breeds around, and you couldn't tell which ones were which. Mm -hmm. It was really quite fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll even back up, Andy. I mean, we've all driven through the countryside, and you can do that just as well today where you are and and see herds that are every color under the rainbow. Mm -hmm. And we look at those herds, and then we drive by a herd that's all red or all black, and we say, wow, you know, the breeder with the solid pattern, he's he's been much more disciplined in his selection. And I think the downside for those of us in cattle breeding is as we crossbred, if we weren't very disciplined, we ended up with an enormous kaleidoscope of colors, shapes, and sizes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that wasn't easy to manage, and it wasn't appealing, and it really didn't produce a consistent product. And so as Bob alluded to, we we worked very early on to make sure that as we bred, crossbred, hybrid, composite animals, that we kept the phenotypic uniformity to basically eliminate that as an objection. And I think as you look at the stabilizer today, you certainly see that. You see a tremendous uniformity in the way and type of those cattle. I mean, it's no different than any other breed. Those of us familiar with the breeds, we can drive down the road and say, oh, look, there's a herd of limousines. There's a herd of Charlays, a herd of Angus. Oop, there's a herd of, of South Devon. Uh, and, and there's a herd of stabilizer. We can see from the uniformity of type that the breed is what it is. And I think that's um, certainly been important to breeders for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and continues to be today. Certainly, it was a question that we asked uh, Chip Kemp, who was on this podcast a week or so ago, and uh, it, it, generally people think if you're going down the crossbreeding line, then it's very difficult to get conformity, but I guess it's about it's about numbers, isn't it? It's- well, it's interesting. You know, I, I if you come from a big family, you know that you can make the same sire and the same dam and get lots of variation, Andy. <laughs> Um, <laughs> so, so it sort of comes down to, to selection and discipline. Um, but it turns out that you, when you made a purebred to a purebred, you can get almost as much variation essentially on all the traits, the equivalent amount of variation as you get when you made hybrid to hybrid. The only exception to that are these handful of traits, you know, horn polled and color that are determined by very few genes. I don't think we have time to dig into that today, but it's a, but it is a reality of, of crossbreeding and, and so suffice it to say, if we use these lookalikes, we eliminate that variation in color and, and, and type. Okay. And let's go on to your own operation there, the Leachman Cattle Company. Um, what sort of numbers are we looking at? How many bulls do you market per year? And, and how many of those would be composites? All of them, I guess. Yeah, we're in the top five seed stock breeders in the United States today. We'll merchandise about 2,500 bulls this year. Okay. Of those, approximately 500 would be purebreds. They would be Angus, Red Angus and Charlay, and then the other 2,000 would be stabilizers. And so, you know, we're about uh, whatever it is, 75, 80% uh, composites. Mm -hmm. And certainly that's our our largest growing market. We we still use the purebreds. We use Charlay as a terminal cross. Um, And, of course, we raise Red Angus and Black Angus um, because those breeds offer so much to any breeding program because of their large databases, and their valuable traits. Um, here in the United States, uh, eating quality is a, is a big driver of selection pressure, and Angus and Red Angus lead the way on that trait. And we were hearing that last week again, that Chip said that, yeah, that the, the big packing houses will determine exactly what you, you they want, and then you guys go out and breed that, and that's, you know, it, it's, it's almost the opposite end to the to the olden days in farming where you produce a product and hope somebody wants to buy it when you when you've got it so it's sort of almost it's reversed itself hasn't 
Yeah, and I think that trend's going to continue, Andy. We're going to see more and more what I would call coordinated supply chains, where the end user says, you know, this is what I want, now build that. And is there a variation? I think over here there's a variation between you know, different different outlets, or so the higher quality end or the lower quality end, and different size animals or what have you. I think the you know, the, the U.S. market generally is more uniform right the way across, isn't it? You, you, the, 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 it's mainly middle ground for exactly what you want. There's no there's no de- demand for the extreme demands. Oh, I don't think that's true, Andy. I think any of these markets have niches. Um, and the niches are defined by lots of different things. They could be de- defined by the meat quality. They could be defined by the attributes on the cattle, even the region where they're raised. And uh, much the same as what you're seeing in the UK, where you might have a, a local farm that's selling beef at the local store because it's reared nearby. Or you might have a breed-based system like Shorthorn, where they're selling a brand or Angus or Wagyu. Um, or you might have something based on meat specs. The big difference in the U.S. is that our grading system our, that assesses the marbling in the beef um, is, is the primary driver of product differentiation in the marketplace. It's not the only. We have tons of, of niches around the edges. We have lean, uh, tender products. We have highly marbled Wagyu's. We have the, the same range it's not quite as diversified as coffee andy but it's close <laughs> <laughs> and how, yeah. do, how do you go about marketing two and a half thousand bulls or do you, do you just is it a couple of sales a year that you have or, or are we are we using now maybe a lot of it's going internet based and i guess of course you guys will be down that route too and, and that, that's made big progress isn't it yeah the internet's coming along we still find that most of our buyers want to see the animals in person so we do about 10 regional sales um, and, and we have them all the way from california in the west to texas in the south to north carolina in the east so we try to span the country and take the bulls toward the buyers okay. our country being quite large mm-hmm. and then we do have a couple of internet sales where we just have them online but i would represent to you that less than 20 percent of our bulls sell online okay. and that 80 percent of them sell to people that are actually at the auctions that's interesting because we yeah. generally have seen a trend where now certainly during the the covid years of the last couple of years that people are starting to to trust specific um, producers because they know that if they're getting a product it's going to be the same product uniformly and they'll just phone up and say i'll have eight or ten bulls but you're saying that your, your buyers still like to see the bulls they do, and I, I wonder if that isn't mainly driven, Andy, by the fact that here we would be selling on average to larger herds, so they'd be making more of an investment. Okay. Um, I would say that if we look at who buys online, they tend to be smaller breeders who maybe buy one bull a year, whereas our larger breeders that want to buy 30 bulls at a time, you know, they're going to come and look. Yeah, yeah, okay, I get that. But can, I, can I add something? Then? Sure, but the, lead, the, the uh, sale that... Uh, you had uh, when COVID hit, I was at, and uh, gosh, you could have shot a shotgun into the stands and not hit anybody, I believe, if you remember that. Yeah, we, and, we sold, Andy, we sold 500 bulls and had 13 buyers show up in person. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it was, so uh, it, yeah, the, I, I vaguely was, remembered. I think I had multiple heart attacks during the sale. Well, well, you know, I was sitting there and, and, uh, I was going, man, I'm really glad I'm at the sale because I'd rather be at Fred's, Lee's a good friend, and I'd rather be at Fred's racks than at their successes because you get noticed better when you're at a rack. And boy, man, I'm glad I'm at this sale because this is going to be a real rack. And Lee, you have one of your better sales, I believe. 
Yeah, it was a good sale. Uh-huh. Yeah, they all came on yeah. orders and on the internet. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Okay, we certainly say we're seeing that that trend seeming to move in in various circles. But I understand if somebody's putting the amount of investment. Of course, we're not talking uh, cheap bulls. Can I ask you what sort of money we're looking at for averages at uh, for you for your your sales? What sort of yeah, so the um, you know our sales last year, and of course we're at the bottom of the cattle market, would have averaged just under five thousand dollars a bull. Okay. Yeah. And uh, you know our top bulls will typically bring in that sort of uh, you know thirty to fifty thousand dollar range. In in stabilizers, or is that just in the purebreds? Yeah, interestingly, our high selling bulls the last several years have all been stabilizers, okay. and our our highest selling bull. Um, in recent time, was a stabilizer bull that we sold about six years ago for two hundred thousand. Right. Okay, and is this going? Are these going into herds where other people are breeding stabilizers? Are they? Are they? Do you have a, a, a number of stabilizer breeders that specialize in that, and that's the, that's what they want? The same way it would be a, pure, a purebred. Yeah, the stabilizer breed in the U.S. is a trademark that we own, Andy. So, so technically they're not, but they are utilizing our gene pool to raise seed stock and sell, um, which I'd jump back and say are hybrid bulls. And be very typical for a red Angus breeder to buy into one of our hybrid bulls and then sell bulls out of that sire in his red Angus sale. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense, yeah. But uh, you're, you're big on data. I mean, how, how does the... How does the data work? Are you working just from your own data? And we spoke to Chip, who was who was involved in the the IGS and sort of data across a lot of different breeds. Are you working your data with with other people, or is this just you using your own your own data? Great question, Andy. Uh, we spend a lot of money and a lot of time analyzing data. We have a database now with one point four million animals in it. Um, that those animals come primarily obviously from the U.S. market and would contain the entire historical database for Leachman cattle going back into the uh, early 1980s. And then um, we get data on the stabilizers from the U.K. and Australia and New Zealand and also have purebred breeders in those countries who send us data. And so we we collect data on about 35,000 seed stock animals a year. Um, about 12,000 of which of those are within the Leachman multiplier system. So they're going towards the production of those 2,500 bulls. But the other two-thirds of that data would be other seed stock breeders who are utilizing our analysis to improve their selection decisions. So the EBVs on the uh, stabilizers in the UK would come out of our analysis, as would those populations in New Zealand and Australia, um, and, and we have breeders around the United States that are utilizing our indexes on their purebred cattle to help market them. Okay. Our philosophy on indexes is, is probably what, what distinguishes us um, and has led to having seed stock breeders contribute data to that database. Okay. And, and can I just, um, just to clarify, really, with the stabilizers, we're talking, you know, there's terminal size and there's maternal size, and obviously, they, they are, are they all similar cattle here, or, or do we have, you have two sort of different variants, if you like, for, for the terminal size rather than the, the one that's going to produce the, the, the females? Yeah, anytime, anytime you produce 20-some thousand animals a year in a breed, you have lots of variation, right? Mm-hmm. So we can find animals that are more terminal or more maternal. But I would tell you that, that the people utilizing our indexes today 
are almost exclusively selecting for maternal traits. We have this thing called dollar profit. Dollar profit, or or pound profit, as it's called in the UK, of course, because your currency is different, tries to look at all the EBVs and how they impact either revenue or cost from birth through harvest, and it tries to find the animal that makes the most money. And that concept has has really been the cornerstone of our selection, our success, and also the participation of others in our database. That makes sense. And, and that data obviously drives your decision-making for you bringing in different animals or different parts in, into the stabilizer. Do you, you bring it in when you're needing um, um, to go down the, the maternal side route? Are you bringing in a different a different contribution from from a breed? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. We're selecting for these overall indexes that look at everything from growth rate to fertility and carcass and feed conversion, cow size, all these traits. And if we do find a deficiency, then we'll certainly go out and look for it. But it, the bar's quite high right now. In other words, um, our genetic trend on these multi-trait indexes is very rapid. Um, it's been accelerated recently by the incorporation of genomics. Um, which we should come back around and talk about. But but because it's so rapid, it's harder and harder for us to find animals outside that can contribute meaningfully. Okay. But each year, we might sample, just to give you an idea, we might sample as many as 10 outside sires um, and AI them to a few thousand cows to try to get some other traits, other lines incorporated, and then we evaluate them. And out of those 10 outside sires we use, typically one or two will contribute in the end, mm-hmm. and the other seven or eight will be somewhat uh, throwaways because they don't they, they, they fall down on traits maybe that the, that the other breeder didn't have characterized as well. And then when we evaluate them on all those traits, it's, it's very hard to run at a high level on on the 20 plus traits that we're evaluating yeah, today i understand that because when you yeah. get all those traits together i mean and then it's about getting the the good looking cattle as well and do you still visually assess, can you have both i mean are the good looking cattle the best ones that breed surely not but uh, do you still do you still use the eye there lee is, is that still part of it you have to you have to and i would say early on in our index selection andy in the in the early 2000s um we did very little visual selection. Um, today, um, we're doing quite a bit more visual selection. Part of that is that we characterize some visual traits with EBVs. For example, we have a bag score and an udder score, a hoof claw shape and a hoof angle. And those are all visual traits okay, okay. that we assess and score and then calculate an EBV. And then, then we're also looking at the way the animal's put together and the way the animal's moving. And uh, we, we like bulls with character as much as the next person. And we like a strong top line. We like a wide base. Um, probably the place visually where we're different than a lot of breeders. Um, if, if I was to make a characterization in general, you'd find our cattle to be a tick shorter okay. and a tick thicker than most cattle in most places that people are breeding. Now, obviously, in the UK, you've got a lot of really thick, high-muscle high cattle. 
but they would tend to be much bigger frame than our cattle okay. in general. Yep. Yep. Um, we're we're really adamant that there's no need to have the the cow weigh much more than the harvest weight of the male okay. calf. Okay. And you, of course, you see that people doing that all over the world. I mean, you know, Australia would do that. We would do that here in the U.S., where the average you know, the average Angus cow today in our country probably weighs over 800 kilos. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 100 pounds heavier than any other breed, mm-hmm. Angus. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. One, one, thing that yeah, you, and, one thing that we didn't get heard mentioned within those EBVs is mobility, I think. Do you, do you, mention, do you mention mobility, walking ability? Does that, does that come into your, your EBV? Yeah, it does, and, and, it, and it needs to. Um, you know, as we select for all these traits, just as this has happened in – in pigs and chickens and dairy cows, when you select for more output, sometimes bad things come along with that, okay? And uh, one of the things we've seen in particular is, uh, you know, problems with hoof structure that have have, have demonstrated or, you know, shown themselves as we've selected for growth and carcass that seems to come along in all of the breeds we breed. And so we've had to correct for that. And remember that, you know, our average bull is going out to breed a, a cow here in the Western United States where that producer probably grazes 30 acres with each pair on average. So, you know, we're talking about much bigger expanses than what you have in in the UK typically. And so movement is very, very important here, just as it is, I think, everywhere that that people breed cattle. And so we are are watching that quite carefully. And I'd say that that structurally, if if we looked at how the cattle have changed over the last just couple of years, um, it has been structural changes that have been sort of a dominant pressure point for us. Do you still use the show ring as a tool when, when, for your own animals and, and when you're buying other animals? Is it standing on the side of the show ring a thing anymore for you or, 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 or is it just going out and visiting the Catalan station? Um, you know, standing on the show ring is fun to visit with the other breeders, um, but but I'm very reluctant, Dandy, to let the one person in the ring who's deciding how to rank them that day drive my breeding program. That's a good answer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing you have to understand is, is somebody that's data driven like Lee and as most of the larger purebred operations, the reluctance to get into show bulls because those bulls have been removed from their contemporary group and have been managed as individuals. So there's really not a good comparison of them. Uh, genetically i mean you you just have an individual and and not really a feel for what is man-made and what is is uh genetics so it's you know so there's actually been a division i think more and more between breeders like lee well, which makes up most of the bull sellers and the people that show it's getting to be two parties but but it is it does obviously overlap a fair bit still Bob but I, I agree with what you said completely but I think Andy if for the breeder out there listening right you have to decide where you're going to put your emphasis right obviously if we could have everything in an animal if we could have the animal that had the best data and could win the show we'd all want that but that's impossible because the the cattle we we know that we make trade offs and we know from from selection strategy that the more traits we're selecting for, the harder it is to find the outlier on any one trait. Mm. And so, you know, how are we going to find the animal that wins the show? What's the odds that that animal is also going to win on all this data? It's pretty small. Um, 
And the data drives our sale price, Andy. Yeah. Data mm-hmm. drives our sale price. Now, we, we play in the Angus breed, and I would say the Angus breed, as much as any breed, still um, is dominated by a variety of different criteria. I mean, one of which is visual. We, we participated in a bull we purchased a year ago um, for $270,000, and he is, he is a bull that, that could walk in the show ring and win, but has great numbers. And, and that's what made him bring all that money. So it is, it is real. Exactly that. If the one that gets the figures and the looks, that makes the money. And I suppose that's probably again the, the way that uh, the world market is going. But you you also do genetic evaluation for other breeders as well, not just yourself. You know, many other purebred cattle. So you, you you run that as a side as your own business, or is that just sort of a crossover? Yeah, you know, in, in dairy we have the advantage that the that the, the tend to be central governments that generate indexes and everybody selects for them. And you've got the power of those scientists working for the government that come up with those indexes. In, in beef cattle, we don't really have that advantage. And so it, those, it sort of fell on the breed associations to have the index expertise. And we found in the early 2000s that, that the breeds did not have any sort of comprehensive models that looked at lifetime profitability. And so we found a group in Canada out of Guelph University that was doing a comprehensive simulation model, and we started selecting with that. And because we, we, we validated that and it worked and it predicted what happened in the commercial market, then we went to other breeders and said, hey, you know, would you like us to run this index on your cattle? And, and we did so, um, I wouldn't say altruistically, Andy. I think we did so because we wanted a larger population run on our indexes so that we could assess those outside cattle coming in. Um, and so today, um, if you look around, there are, are composite breeders, Red Angus breeders, Angus breeders, Gelby breeders, Simmental breeders around the world who are utilizing our database, what do they get with that? They get a unique set of indexes that look at profitability in a way that's, that's quite, uh, I think, uh, interesting, and, and they find an advantage to help them with their selection. And then we run, that, we run the genetic analysis every single week, and now that genetic analysis is run by Zoetis, and incorporates Oedis's 50K genomic panel. And so there's an interesting kind of a partnership that's developed. Zoetis's goal was to have a platform to test commercial cattle for these indexes. So today in the United States, if you have a commercial herd and you want to test your potential replacement females and receive EBVs on all the traits that we measure in our database, you run that Zoetis test and literally your DNA runs with our data and comes up with a prediction. And uh, that's the kind of uh, private partnership going on to uh, basically allow us to do the types of things that dairy cattle breeders have been doing for a decade and a half. And, uh, it's exciting. One of our top breeder, Angus breeders over here is now doing trials with uh, with um, feed conversion. So they're weighing all the, all the feed coming in and then converting that going out there. Is, is that another one that gets measured? Do you actually weigh the, weigh the feed? Yeah. Out? Yeah, we've done that on 40,000 animals. Wow. Um, so we have a pretty big database. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we're utilizing that and have been utilizing that since 2007. Okay. That's when we started 
measuring feed efficiency. So we've got 15 years of that. Um, and, and we think that's a very, if you look at pigs and chickens, that that's, that's kind of their number one selection criteria. But so we select for feed efficiency. We also have a lifetime fertility EPD that's quite efficacious at increasing the number of calves that a bull's daughters have in their productive lifetime. And, uh, and then we've got all these other traits, growth and carcass, and, and all of them utilize the genomics as well as the information. And so it's a very, it's a very powerful system at identifying the animals that have the most desirable combinations. And then, of course, Andy, we, we find those animals and we go out and look at them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And we say, Lately, yes. Can you talk about how heterosis in, uh, is handled because you're, you're dealing with a lot of different crosses and stuff and your yeah. genetic evaluation and how how it breeds and how the genetics are uh, are predicted i mean th- that that combination yeah without getting into the weeds too much you have to adjust for what is heritable and what's not heritable and unfortunately you get heterosis but it's not a heritable trait right bob so yep um so in a sense, we when we measure an individual, we have to look at that individual and say, let's say we made a first generation hybrid, okay? So we cross Simmental and Angus. That animal has a tremendous amount of hybrid vigor and we have to remove or at least identify how much of his, that animal's performance is from heterosis, the hybrid vigor, versus how much is from their genetics. Uh, because we have contemporary groups I mean, it's very typical if we have a contemporary group of 100 animals, which we have lots of in our database, a lot of those contemporary groups will have 85 different breed combinations. So, I mean, so we have this tremendous mishmash of breeds, which if you understand statistical models, it basically allows you to say, well, how much is coming from heterosis and how much is coming from genetics? And uh, it's interesting, Bob, we've, you know, people have struggled with these composite populations to get the predictions right. But uh, we know because we're out testing these predictions on commercial cattle that they work. Okay. And, uh, and that's important. So going on or staying with it, should I say with the stabilizers, I do know that you've, that there's been a, a number of, of stabilizers being used here in the UK. We've got quite a big UK listener base to this podcast who will, who recognize that. How they, how's your overseas uh, uh, business going with that European business going with the stabilizers? I'll take you back to a quote my dad says, you know, in the, in the late 1990s, these group of UK guys came over and bought 52 embryos from us, stabilizer embryos. And we thought, boy, that'll never go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that group has had the most success with our genetics of any group in the world. Really? Okay. And, and the reason, I think, is because that our cattle were particularly well suited for the purpose that they selected them for. Okay. Mm-hmm. To say it differently, you, you have a great climate in the UK. You've got tremendous grass. Mm-hmm. You try to get an animal to market weight. You want that animal to have a fair bit of muscle, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in that environment, you basically had European breeds and British breeds. Um, the, the, the European breeds, of course, led on the muscularity and they scored better on the European grading system. Yeah. The, the British breeds tried to emulate that, and that wasn't, wasn't really what they were designed to do. And in the process, they lost some of their maternal attributes. And so when we build a composite, we're basically able, I think what's the beauty of the stabilizer is we get the historical maternal attributes of the British breeds, mm-hmm. 
but we get the muscle shape and, and the yield from the continental breeds. And, and then we get the hybrid vigor at the same time. And when you put those three things together, it makes the, the stabilizer very apt for the UK situation. They, they produce at a very high level reproductively. And, and then they hit your grading system, not in a maximum the way, the way a Belgian blue or limo or char will, but they optimize that maternal function with that, that harvest function, if that makes sense. Mr. Bruce Wills. Yeah. And um, I think Bob mentioned to me that you've done some uh, some studies on the UK on the carbon footprint, and it's obviously now a topical conversation quite often on this uh, on this podcast. And, and how does that work out? Yeah, so Alltech did an assessment of the UK stabilizer population. And when you combine the genetic advantages and the managerial advantages, um, it showed that the uh, stabilizer animals had a 40% lower carbon footprint than the average um, AHDB top third animal. And of course, your your record system with uh, identification and harvest information allows a pretty accurate calculus of all that. That math is much harder to do here in the U.S. because we have no identification system. Okay. But in the U.K., it's, it's quite a bit easier. And so I think that surprised everybody and, 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 and then led people to say, why did that happen? Yes. Um, right? I mean, that 40% is a crazy number. I mean, they almost did as well on carbon footprint as a dairy cross beef animal where you don't count the dairy cow, okay, which is crazy. Um but the reason they did so well is for every 100 stabilizer cows, they wean around 95% calves. Okay. So first of all, the, the, the fertility um, ratio is very high. And, and that's because we don't have calving difficulty because they are maternal, because they're very good mothers, because we have a significant percentage of twins, you know, three, 4% twins. Right. And, and then we feed those males as entires and they reach market at 13 months. And uh, it's a very optimal production system for your UK market. And so it's, it's a, it's a combination of those things. They've been selected for feed efficiency. The cows aren't too big. They're very fertile. They have hybrid vigor. Um, it, it's just a, it, as, 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 as would be expected mm-hmm. making carbon right is not a single trade event it's a systems event right and and these biological systems are complicated and then we layer on top of that grass and people and management and it's very complicated and it takes a systems approach and i think that our animals are proving to be desirable because we've optimized the production system for a long time okay. we've said look feed feed all things being equal we want less we want to put less feed in we want growth to go faster we want more muscle we want more eating quality i mean the stabilizers win a lot of eating quality trials because they've got high levels of marbling it's you know it's just a lot of things right Mm -hmm. it's it's not any one thing it's a lot of things um lee what do you think is your biggest competitive advantage with with a composite well, obviously, if you've, if you've ever run a herd where you have straight breads and crossbreds side by side, hybrid vigor is a huge tool, okay? I mean, the, the math is that in the temperate environments where UK is and where we are, we get about 23% more pounds weaned per cow that we join with the bull. Okay. That's a huge number. 23% is a huge number. And so 
how do we get as much of that as we can and still keep the goodness that comes from the straight breeds? In other words, keep their uniformity, keep their advantage trait by trait. And uh, composite breeding is hard. And I think that's why not a lot of people have done it, Andy. But, but if you do it correctly, it yields a big advantage. And uh, I think that's what's expanding our market share, um, even with the pushback from the pure breeds, which is significant, is, right? Yeah. I mean, the yeah. pure breeds are valuable and they, and they have a lot of strength in the marketplace. But, but we're, you know, I think we're the fastest growing breed in the UK or near the fastest. Um, we're certainly growing very quickly here in the U.S. We're seeing a, a big uptick now in the U.S. for the use of stabilizers on on these dairy cows that are getting bred to raise beef calves. That's emerging as a, as a huge market for us because guess what? Calving ease and feed efficiency and optimal growth rate and muscle yield are important traits when you breed a dairy cow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, indeed. Yeah. And Bob, you got a bit to add to that? Well, you know, I just think it. Uh, you know, we're seeing seeing these systems come along. Whichever it is, I think Lee had the key point was he has a system he's selling of uniformity and, and optimum, uh, you know, performance and, and adaptability into different environments. And I, I mean, it works. I mean, you need to have a system. I, I, I don't mean to, to uh, be too bold here, but uh, at least Dad said people like to be led, and, and, and they're leading. They're leading not, not with words and pom-poms, but they're leading with data and facts, and that, that helps. And, and do you um, – the stabilizers over here or over there, for that matter, are the people basically breeding stabilizers on stabilizers and, and, and closing that as a herd, or are they still, are they still changing the input into the stabilizer all the time? In order to uh, keep the hybrid vigor in a, in a composite, you've got to make sure you use enough different sire lines each generation. And so that's being done all over the world to, keep, to make sure that we keep the hybrid vigor ginning along. But we're very much breeding stabilizer to stabilizer. Okay. And we like that both from the uniformity and from the unique combination of traits we get. And I would say that's also happening in our commercial herds. It was surprising to us when we introduced the Charlet um, about 15 years ago. We thought we'd have many stabilizer breeders who utilize the Charlet as a terminal cross, but that's not really happened. Um, our, our commercial customers are quite happy with their stabilizers, and they're quite happy with the maternal selection of the stabilizer. And so I think that the, the stabilizer breed as a whole will – We'll really focus on being this uh, suckler herd, what we would call a cow-calf herd breed that, that drives maternal efficiency and still has very desirable um, fattening and, and harvest traits. Uh, I think we will have a separate line that gets developed that optimizes the cross on the, on the dairies. Can I take, add a, just something to composites in general? A lot of our big, big, big commercial herds, I mean, I'm talking about the, the very largest, use composite bulls of their own making uh, out of their top cattle. And when they run the genetic evaluation, oftentimes they're really not looking to move the traits anywhere. They're just uh, testing their bulls genomically to make sure that they are keeping the right proportions of breed makeup to keep our, our heterosis optimized. So that's an interesting take on a genetic evaluation is 
is, is keeping the breed components there to maximize heterosis rather than moving traits. We had this uh, conversation again a few weeks ago. Is, do we see the composites replacing all the uh, all the pedigree breeds? And, and I think the, the 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 general consensus was that you still you're still going to need the pedigree breeds out there. But I mean, if you if you could take a crystal ball and look into the future of cattle production in the U.S., U.K., worldwide for that matter, would would you would you see the, a lot of these breeds um, um, disappearing, losing their identity to composites, uh, both on your side and ours? Great question, Andy. There's there's obviously um, headwinds and tailwinds on that topic. Um, the breeds have a lot of identity to the consumer today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I maybe wouldn't have predicted that 40 years ago, but, you know, the rise of Angus and, and then Wagyu and, and some of the other breeds and their branding has, has created a consumer identification that's important today. So that's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um I do think that that reproductive technologies have changed such that, you know, it it does allow some of the things being done in chickens and pigs to be done in beef cattle. Okay. And so you have companies like ourselves and and even a a company that would be familiar to most of your UK listeners, a company like Genus, who's very much working on hybrids and composites. And um, I think that the technology today allows a breeder to breed composites or hybrids and be ultra competitive with the purebred breeders, which wasn't really the case in the 80s and 90s or early 2000s. In the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, the, the, the purebreed databases and genetic analysis were superior to what could be done in, in private databases. That's no longer the case. And so I think we're going to see a shift I think you're going to see a large number of these of these supply chains start to do their own genetic analysis. You're going to see a number of these large breeders start to do their own genetic analysis. I, I would say today, as we look at our business, our business is, is looking forward is more about supplying genetics into a supply chain that's targeting a specific market objective and less about selling genetics to a suckler herd, okay? okay? Yeah. Yep. And so that's a shift. Um, my guess is that the answers to the supply chain questions that are being asked will come in the form of a hybrid. And, uh, and maybe the last point I'd make on that, if carbon footprint and sustainability becomes one of the primary drivers of sustainability... If that happens, okay, then the need, almost the requirement to having a suckler cow that's a hybrid, that's a crossbred, that has hybrid vigor, becomes almost an imperative. I don't think any purebred line can compete with a hybrid line on carbon footprint when we look at the cow. So that's that's a big game changer that none of us really anticipated, right? But but here we are. But you still see, or you 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 still predict that we're using composite bulls back on these on these hybrid cows? Yeah, I think more and more so. I mean, you know, uh, obviously the challenge, and we could have a whole podcast on breeding systems, Bob. Right? We could, yeah, we could go course. into that in great detail. But the problem is, how do you crossbreed? with pure breeds and keep uniformity and manage your system. 
I mean, I, I went to a herd in Ireland on one of my trips over a few years back and, and they had, they were buying in limb Angus cows and they were breeding some of them to uh, Belgian bulls and they were breeding some of them to stabilizer bulls. And you can imagine what they had going on. It was complicated. And in a small herd, it's particularly complicated. And the guy said, you know, I, I think I'd be better off just breeding everything back to stabilizer and keeping my own replacement females. And he did. And it suddenly became so much simpler. And I think that, that people have tried all these different crossbreeding systems. And basically, they're all too complicated. The only one that's not complicated is to use hybrid bulls or composite bulls. Because then the crossbreeding complexity is in the herd of the breeder, not the user. Okay? And so that makes it so much more simple to, to, to utilize. And uh, that's what I see going forward. If the cow in the suckler herd has to be crossbred, my suspicion is you'll see a, 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 an, an expanding market share for composite and hybrid genetics. That doesn't mean the pure breeds are going to go away. They have their purpose. I mean, there are still significant pure breeders in, in the swine industry, as an example, and certainly in the dairy industry. But as we look at overall system efficiency, hybrid vigor is a force that must be taken into account. It's, it's such a large emphasis. As Bob said, despite all of our genomics and all of our massive data, hybrid vigor still comes in as the one thing that drives the most value in the overall system. That's, uh, and so uh, keeping hybrid vigor is critical. Yeah, but it's, it's always garbage in, garbage out, though. You always have to remember that. You have to start with the right components and the quality components or, or you're nowhere. Uh, so uh, heterosis cannot make up for bad inputs. And no. And, and everybody in the UK would know that, Bob, because they would have all at one point bought basically these Frisian cross dairy animals that were okay because of their hybrid vigor. But then as the Holsteins became more extreme and the European or the continental breeds became more extreme, that sort of that limo Holstein became a cow that wasn't very good, right, Andy? I mean, yeah, nobody, absolutely. nobody could make that cow work. That cow had 100% hybrid vigor, but the inputs were so lousy at making a maternal cow that they didn't make good suckler cows. As an aside, my family, we used to uh, run a 1,000 uh, bull beef units all on Frisians, and I used to buy the cows when I was a youngster fresh out of school, and when the Holstein came in, it just completely destroyed the whole, the whole business because you just couldn't get, you couldn't get pro proper Frisians anymore, and, and you're quite right. The Holstein didn't do that job. Yeah. And so it's just what Bob said, you know, garbage in, garbage out. Uh, it was really that that trend, Andy, that, that prompted those breeders to come look at stabilizer when they did. And uh, I think the, the breed responds to a very big niche in the market. And, and I suppose... We, we looked at the future, the other future, change in the future, well, the change that has happened, which will have hugely accelerated your business, will be the, the way that technology has advanced. And are there still advances in technology that we could, that, that we could use that, that, may, that may come into play in, in the future? Oh, of course. And there are things we can't even think about because we don't know they exist. The one we're playing around with now is gene editing. Okay. Um, you know, that's a tricky one, particularly if you're trying to sell meat into Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but... It's interesting that both the U.S. and I think the U.K. have come out in favor of the use of gene editing to move genes within a species. In other words, 
if we have a an animal that's from a breed that's horned and we want to make it polled, we grab the polled gene from one of those other animals and put it in that horned population, okay? And by doing that, we really didn't make a GMO. We just we just crossbred with a very accelerated technology, right? <laughs> um, and so our governments have said that's not a GMO. It's a GMO when you go take a gene from a pig and stick it in a cow or something like that. And we're, we're not really interested in that, but we are interested in finding some of these genes. The, the stuff that we're playing around with right now um, would include, uh, there's been a, a bull calf born in the United States that's red, and he's dominant red. So it's a, it was originally a black Angus animal with no red gene that they edited to have a dominant red gene, and now that animal is red, and all of that animal's offspring will be red, right. which is kind of cool. Okay. Um, and then we're, we're, we're playing around with some genes that allow some of the temperate breeds to function at a high level in tropical regions. Okay. And so, you know, those are just a couple of things that are happening. I think we'll see more of that as we go forward. But, but I, I think that that, you know, I don't see that that's going to revolutionize things. I mean, it might revolutionize things if suddenly I had a line of bulls that would only sire bulls, right? That would be interesting. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, people then would want that from a terminal standpoint. Sure. But, but um, I, I don't know that that exists yet today, but it might in the future. And, and so we've got our eye on that technology for sure. Okay. Andy, can I, can I add, you know, whenever you look at, you know, we're kind of coming to, to I think the the whole point of between Chip's uh, podcast and Lee, what Lee has been saying all this time is is uh, Chip is working with International Genetic Solutions, and that's a twenty breed uh, database, and and they are doing a crossbreed EPDs accounting for heterosis and and allowing the the hybrid market and stuff to exist in that. In that platform, Lee is doing the same thing, and he's working with a number of purebred breeders, and he's doing indexing for a large group of breeders around the world, both of them. And so this is getting to be where where uh, heterosis is becoming easily uh, managed. It's identified. It can be compared uh, with the purebred cattle. You can design specific systems, and, and it, it comes down to a lot of it is the sophistication of of these genetic analysis are just tremendous. Whether you're talking about international genetic solutions or Lee system, and 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 it comes down that you can effectively manage heterosis and breed complementarity like never before. Get the uniformity like we never thought we could. It's an exciting world. Things are changing rapidly. It certainly is, and it's been an exciting podcast, I have to say, and and to, uh, to hear how in within just not much more than a generation how the the whole the whole beef system in the u.s has evolved and, and as i said evolved through clever people like yourself uh, lee and you bob for that matter as well and uh, and chip and others who were, who were looking to the future to, to, to as you said to get the uniformity and, and the heterosis so it's uh, been it's been highly interesting well thank you lee? for having me on andy appreciate it well, no. lee would you have anything to add to, as a summary to what i said on there no, I, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much to go around, but I, I guess, um, you know, as, as we see the future, we're obviously struggling to keep our social license to raise beef cattle at some level. <laughs> um, 
and at, at a different level, you know, demand for protein is, is exploding. And so how are we going to do that? I, I think that we're going to utilize our technologies and all of our traditional breeding skills that go back to what it, to the, to the herdsman being with the animal and observing what's happening to basically make these cattle more competitive. If we look at what sheep and, and, and chickens and uh, pork have done, they, they've all made tremendous progress on efficiency. You know, the, the number of births per animal, the rate to get to market, the, the, the muscularity of the animal at harvest. I mean, they've, they've changed those dramatically. We've been a bit slow on the draw on cattle, but I think we're in a, a time where we can catch, we can make progress, we can move faster, and we have to move faster. Um, the world's going to require that of us. And so we're excited. We're more excited today than we've ever been um, because we have all these tools um, at our fingertips. And uh, I think I think it's a great time to be in cattle breeding. Well, I, I must have to say I'm excited that people like yourself and Bob have led the way in the past and, and Lee's still leading the way in the future. And uh, we need people who look forward and not backwards. And you certainly are a man that does that. And uh, I really appreciate your, uh, your input onto our Top Lines and Tails podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Lee. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this week's Highly Interested podcast. Top Lines and Tails are very grateful for the sponsorship of Harbro suppliers and manufacturers of high-quality nutrition and nutritional advice. Why not let Harbro help you get on the cost of your production? They can do free, no-obligation reviews of your current production system. Just contact Harbro through the usual channels, online, through social media, or through your local representative. And don't forget to look out Top Lines and Tales' Facebook page, where there will be, as always, discussions and some photographs to back up this and other episodes.